0: We were doing nationally a pretty good job at training MD-PhD students vis-a-vis MD-PhD programs, structure, community building, etc. But then we were graduating our students off into the cold, dark wilderness of residency training.
1: That's Dr. Chris Williams, today on Behind the Microscope. Hello everyone and welcome back. I'm Bijan Sadie and this is Behind the Microscope a podcast about the people and process behind the scenes of science and medicine. Today, we kick off our series featuring Vanderbilt University with a conversation with Dr. Chris Williams, the director of the MD-PhD program. Dr. Williams is a professor of medicine and cancer biology in the division of gastroenterology, an associate dean of physician scientist education and training, and an associate director of the physician scientist training program. He got his MD-PhD at Vanderbilt and stayed on for residency in internal medicine and fellowship in GI. Today, Dr. Williams breaks down the structure and culture of the Vanderbilt MD-PhD program and shares his vision for how we can improve training and support for early career physician scientists. Without further ado, here is Dr. Chris Williams.
2: We've seen a lot of successful PIs and talked to a lot of successful PIs. Um, and people involved in medical education and graduate education um, and it seemed to us that there's a lot of things that are sort of intangible that are not formally taught that are necessary to succeed as you know in not getting burnt out or running a successful lab and having a family life too and so so the the Impetus behind this was to try to interview people who have done it and see if they have any uh, salient advice that we can yeah. kind of transmit to the broader MD PhD community. So, um, so uh, if you don't mind, we can just talk about your career and how you yeah. came to how you found out about MD PhD as a career path and, and
0: yeah, definitely you. sounds good. So, um, let's see where to start with that. So, when I was an undergrad at BYU. I would uh, had the opportunity to go up to the University of Utah to the Eccles Institute of Human Genetics um, to do some work on uh, studying the uh, genetics of essential hypertension with a uh, HHMI investigator named Jean-Marc Lalouel, And I worked with an American Heart Association fellow, whose name was Rick Lifton, who is an M- MSTP trained from Stanford. And this was a super exciting time to do science there and was involved on some really cool projects in which we discovered uh, some mutations in the angiotensinogen gene that tracked with essential hypertension and um, really caught the bug for doing science at that time as well. And so I applied to MSTP programs and. Um, I uh, let's just say my freshman year academic experience in college almost precluded my ability to get into an MSTP okay. program, and so Vanderbilt actually um, invited me to come as a grad student um, with the understanding that I would take a couple of med school classes, and if I performed well in those, then I would switch into the MSTP program. And thank goodness, did the that MD
2: happened. PhD program facilitate that? They did. Okay. Yep. So it wasn't just the grad school that you applied to and said, I'm going to try to do this. There, it was like a plan. Yep. We're going to see how you do.
0: Absolutely. So uh, I think the um, the logic was like most MSTP programs, Vanderbilt's MSTP program took a holistic approach to evaluating applicants. And I actually had a lot of research experience, which was, I was fortunate uh, to have some great mentors like Rick Lifton, who gave advice, and so they were very enthusiastic about recruiting me, but uh, the medical school was concerned about um, the challenges that might happen with the medical school curriculum. So that, after taking two classes, so the first semester, I'll never forget that the MSTP director um, asked me to come to his office, and he stood up and he said, congratulations, I'd like to welcome you to the MSTP. That's awesome. Um, And so... Because I had done some of those med school classes and some of the graduate school training right up front, I'd already done rotation lab rotations, okay. and I'd already picked a lab and had a project that was really moving forward. I paused med school and then just went into the grad school phase right away. So I finished grad school and then came back to the second, third, and fourth wow. years of med school. And that was something that Vanderbilt was terrific in allowing flexibility in approaching my training because it just made a lot of sense to go that way. So my thesis work was in Ray Bois' lab, and we studied the mechanism of action of selective COX-2 inhibitors before they came on the market, like Vioxx and Celebrex, and Vioxx has since been pulled off the market in uh, colon cancer Mm -hmm. using animal and cell culture models. And then um, I short-tracked into the Harrison Society, which was... At that time, was about four years old um, and uh, short-tracked into GI and became clinically interested in the management of inflammatory bowel disease and did postdoctoral fellowship in a lab in biochemistry that studied benign and malignant hematopoiesis. But they actually had made a knockout mouse that they were hoping would have really striking hematopoietic phenotypes but they actually had some gut phenotypes Mm -hmm. and the PI again was he was very generous PI he said well come to my lab work on these uh, characterizing these mouse phenotypes in the gut and then you can take whatever whatever you're able to develop because I'm not interested in the gut and you're not interested in hematopoiesis Um, and we've remained collaborators uh, ever since and then uh, came on faculty in 2007 and uh, was given the opportunity to direct the Harrison Society around 2012 and then uh, become the MD-PhD director
3: in around
0: 2016. Okay,
2: Awesome. Um, so it's really fascinating that you did grad school and then essentially came and did all of med school. You did one semester of med school and then did did, or did you do a whole year?
0: Did a, It was a hybrid semester. It was one, cl- one course that's typically in the first year med school curriculum and one course that was in the second year curriculum. Yeah. And, uh, and then did all of grad school and then came back and did second, third, and fourth years. Of right, med right. School. Yeah. So um, did you
2: feel like, because then you did second, third, fourth year of med school, then you did residency. Yeah. Um, Did you feel like that was a long time away from the lab?
0: Definitely. And uh, I would say, and I don't think this is a unique experience. Um, When I got back to the bench during my postdoc, it was uh, when I was in graduate school, there were techniques called northern blots to measure RNA levels. And when I got back to the bench, there was this (laughs) real-time PCR thing, for example. So... Um, but it's not uncommon. Those of us that have done rotations know that each lab does things a little bit differently. And so you're learning something new every time you approach into the lab. I think the value of gra- your graduate training is you have the confidence to know that even though you're seeing something new, you'll be able to pick it up and run. And I think in the same way, our our clinical training gives us that kind of confidence as well, mm-hmm. just through all the rotations we're able to go through.
2: Right. It's It's like, New things are going to happen, but yeah, you, know, you sort of just know you're going to be able to deal with them. Yep, absolutely. Um, and then, so the Harrison Society, that is the sort of physician scientist training program, yes. is that correct?
0: Yep, in um, internal medicine. Right. In internal medicine. Yeah. So, okay. Patrick, who's the director of the Harrison Society now? Yeah, okay. And that,
2: so can you tell us a little bit about how that's structured?
0: Yep, so the Harrison Society is um, what I would say is a traditional PSTP, or Physician-Scientist Training Program. So uh, the trainees are recruited right out of med school. They apply for residency. Here at Vanderbilt, we have a separate match for the Harrison Society. And they match into a program that provides a community and longitudinal mentoring that spans residency and fellowship. Um, some of the program components or features Uh, include a monthly seminar series, which is a combination of research and progress for those fellows that are in the research phase of their training, and um, career panels. One of my favorite panels is uh, how to negotiate for a faculty position. That's awesome. In which um, when our, when I was the director, when our scholars suggested that, I said, hey, that's a great idea. I'll get some division chiefs, maybe a department chair to participate on that panel. And they said, no, 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 no. We want our recently graduated alums who just went through this process Mm -hmm. to be on the panel because we want to know the nuts and bolts of how to negotiate.
3: Right. Um,
0: And so that's been a very successful and popular uh, panel for the Harrison Scholars. And then we have about four times a year, we have something called a visiting professorship where we'll bring in um, really outstanding examples of physician scientists, you know, somebody that's been very successful as a physician scientist, um, typically very well-established. They might be department chairs or deans. Um, and then a subset of those would be less well-established, so more um, closer to their um, training stage of their career. And they give Medicine Grand Rounds, and then we have lunch with them, and the scholars just ask them whatever questions they want. Francis Collins was one speaker, wow. and um, that was a little awkward when asking, you know, uh, how much funding is being provided for physician-scientist training, for example. Um, other aspects of the program... Uh, include some, uh, some salary supplementation and um, other uh, components that assist in building a community. So I think that's one of the huge values of having a PSTP, just like um, you've seen in an MSTP, um, the uh, huge importance of having a community. And so um, there uh, are uh, social events, um, so there are probably two times a year there are picnics that the Harrison Society comes to. And then other aspect of the program is um, we have a partnership with the MSTP, mm-hmm. and our MSTP is broken up into four colleges. And uh, the Harrison Scholars, as are our pediatric PSTPs and surgery PSTPs, are invited to serve as associate college advisors. Okay. So my logic there is the MSTP students are going to find them anyway, and this way uh, they actually get some recognition for the role that they'll play in providing advice and mentoring uh, the MSTP. So they're welcome to attend any of the MSTP curricular activities, um, but they can pick and choose what they can attend because they have uh, their own job that they're busy, busily engaged in. Um. That's
2: really cool about creating a community. Yeah. Um, I've asked this question multiple times to other people, but do you think that MD-PhD, having a community of MD-PhDs who are grounded by some kind of clinical commonality, but maybe not necessarily scientific commonality, increases the amount of collaboration that can happen across disciplines?
0: I think whenever there's commonality, whether that be clinical or scientific commonality, that's ripe for collaborations. Mm -hmm. Um, One of our scholars um, published a pretty big paper defining this concept of a PHEWAS. His name's Josh Denny. And it was striking to notice how many other Harrison scholars were co authors on that paper who had similar interests, either clinical interests, or research interests, this was in the bioinformatics space. I think what's important is that there is an opportunity for people with those interests to interact, so kind of the soil for those fertile collaborations. And I think having formal programming where there is an institutional structure for fostering those interactions is important. That's, like I mentioned, that's one of the values of the MSTP. I think that's the value of PSTPs as well. Um, The other, I think, real important value of PSTP and MSTP is the near-peer mentoring, right? So in the MSTP, as an M1 or an M2 student, you're starting to think more and more about what lab am I going to go into and how often do students approach students that are in G3, G4, or have returned to med school for advice about uh, identifying labs. Um, similarly, with a PSTP, those research phase scholars can provide a lot of advice uh, to the um, clinical phase scholars as well.
2: So let's then let's talk a little bit about your role um, in the MSTP then. Um, So how is your program structured, just for people that might not be familiar with Vanderbilt's?
0: The structure of Vanderbilt's MSTP? The structure of Vanderbilt's MSTP. So our first year of med school is the preclinical year. Uh, Second year of med school is what most programs have as their third year. Our students do all of their core clerkships during that second year of medical school. Then they enter the research phase of their training graduate school um and their graduate training just like most programs is under the direction of primarily under the direction of their thesis advisor thesis committee and graduate uh program training requirements and then they come back to a single uh clinical year okay
2: um and then do you have things built into the then the structure of MSTP uh that promotes like integration between those students, like you were saying, G3s, G4s, and the M1s, M2s.
0: Absolutely. So right when our students get here, our M1s are assigned an M2 as a big. Okay. And then that M2 has a big and so on, and they're organized into families. And so they'll have family activities, family dinner. Um, So that's one mechanism. So that allows this vertical integration.
2: Is that that like a you do that? like the program organizes that or or do the families like organize that Yeah, it's a
0: great question. The program provides administrative support, mm-hmm. but the M2s, the students are the ones that help select their they don't select their bigs, the bigs help select their littles, so called. Okay. So an M2 and an M2G1 might be involved in identifying who to match up with who. Okay. So the students are very involved That's cool. in doing that. And then the program provides financial support also for their activities. Then um, we have uh, over 100 students in our program. So to help promote the sense of community, we're broken up into four colleges. Each college has roughly 25 students. Um, And then there's three faculty advisors and three associate college advisors. And the uh, faculty advisors Um, Might be freshly minted assistant professor on the physician-scientist track. They might be very senior physician-scientists also. The associate college advisors are our PSTPs. Mm -hmm. And so we have a um, weekly seminar that's Wednesday at noon. That one week is a uh, journal club by our G1 students. Okay, Alternating weeks, it's college activities. So they'll break up another small college. So the
2: whole MSTP
0: gets together.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basically every other week.
0: And the whole then... MSTP every other week and then colleges the other week. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what are
2: those seminars? What what is the content of
0: those seminars? Yeah, so the when the whole MSTP gets together it's a journal club by the G ones and then the college activities are gonna be journal club by the M ones, that's to get them huh. some experience. Yeah. And then Research in Progress by the G-Phase students. The idea there is we kind of wanted to do the research in progress in a smaller, less formal venue to allow a lot of feedback. So they're asked to only take about 25 minutes in presenting what they're working on and leave the remainder of the hour for questions and interactions. Um, and then something called college ac- college specific activities and they can pick what they want to do. so a popular college activity for the last ever since we formed a wellness committee has been wellness initiatives okay. So um, we just had a college spe- and so each of the colleges can pick what activity they want for that time block. So this last week we had uh, the three three of the colleges came up with wellness activities. Um, how to use um, what techniques like um, meditation mm-hmm. can be. There was some instruction on how meditation can be used mm-hmm. to cope with stress. For example, there was a activity on how to have difficult conversations and had set expectations, which goes mm-hmm. both ways, right? So right. students setting expectations with other students and with faculty and faculty uh, understanding right. how to help um Manage up. Let's just say and help the faculty clearly communicate as well. So the colleges can have their own activities as well Um, There was last year there was a panel that one of our deans Participated in and our PSTPs and talked just about the struggles that they had over the course of their training with depression with anxiety with mental health And etc. That's
2: awesome because it just builds in people you can go talk to yeah Um, so That's really cool because probably each of these colleges develop their own little culture or, uh, you know, it's it's sort of like, you know, a friendly version of tribalism, right? We have this similar thing.
3: Um,
2: So I'm curious then in the MSDP as a whole, when you're recruiting students Mm -hmm. and you think you have to think about you have these hundred people who have, there's a distinct Vanderbilt culture, I assume. We have similar kind of distinct Emory MSTP culture. When you're recruiting students, how intentional about making sure they're going to fit into that culture, yeah. are you?
0: We're pretty, pretty intentional about that. So our students, just like I would suspect Emory's program, are very involved in the recruitment. Mm-hmm. Um, so when uh, we have our interview dates, we have um, the uh, applicants come over to my house for dinner and our students come over to my house also, Um, and then uh, that's on a Thursday night, and then Friday is the heavy interview day, and I really, um, the advice that I provide to those that are applying to our program is, uh, you know, really think of the interviews. Most of the people you're going to interview are with scientists, and scientists are naturally curious, and they're not going to have expertise. In your area of right. research but they're gonna wonder about it and they're gonna want to see how you think right so when they're asking questions try to relax and just try to talk science mm-hmm. um, and let your enthusiasm come through and then our students take over after that and so they, there's a dinner organized downtown by the students and then on Saturday uh, the students again are in charge of all the programming they'll have a brunch at one of the students houses and then we have four students on our admissions committee and the students can definitely weigh in on uh, people applying to the program. And, like I mentioned, we've got a holistic approach uh, to evaluating the applicants to our program, and whether or not the, it's felt um, that they fit into the culture of the program is an important consideration. Mm-hmm. What are other considerations? Yeah, so your usual uh, uh, metrics, mm-hmm. so GPA, MCAT score, but um weighted most heavily is evidence that they really are passionate about science and have innate curiosity and just want to know and have that drive to know no matter what yeah. and, and uh, are comfortable with uncertainty yeah. and comfortable with not knowing the answer to something and saying, I don't know, but I wonder if this might be what's happening. Um so um, their innate curiosity, and so the evidence for that. So how much research experience do they have? The letters recommendation from somebody who's mainly been involved in uh, working with them in research environment carry a, a lot of weight in our applications, um, and then the interviews carry a lot of weight for the reasons that you just indicated. Right. Right? right. That gives you a kind of a sense for for what's how they might fit in with the program. Right. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Um, all right, and then. I- so so you you obviously have this very big role programmatically helping set culture and things but you also have your own lab.
3: Yeah. And so
2: I'm curious about some of these things like mentorship, hiring the right people to fit the culture in your lab. Yeah. Um so if you could speak to some of that.
0: Yeah, I would say my approach is very similar in terms of maintaining a culture okay. in lab as it is to maintaining a healthy environment I think in the MSTP. And that's before somebody gets recruited into the lab, everybody has a say in whether or not we should recruit that individual to the lab. So with grad school, you got rotations, and as part of rotations, there's lots of interactions with other students that are in your lab. So for me, um, that has to be a decision that everybody agrees on. Um, and so uh, I think that's important in maintaining a culture in the lab. Then... Uh, for me personally, I think within the MSTP, just like the lab, a rising tide lifts all ships. And so try to encourage an environment where people want to help each other and yeah. want to be very collaborative. Um, we try very early to get people involved in other people's projects so they can contribute in an intellectual uh, fashion so they can uh, be involved on those publications as well.
2: Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. I mean- if you if you don't see research as a as a zero-sum game you can get a lot more accomplished yeah. I think. Or at least that's what I've seen in the various labs I've been in so I think that's awesome yeah so very specifically then say you bring in a postdoc
3: yep.
2: applicant you know a grad school stu- grad student is a little bit easier because they're in the lab for three months or whatever yeah. but postdoc <clears throat> maybe comes in for a day and interviews how do you how do you assess them over the course of that day? Yeah. Um, do you have tricks for that?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure if I have <laughs> tricks for that. Um, but I would. my philosophy is to gather data, just like we do science. I'm going to gather as much data as possible. Um, I think there's a disadvantage in me being the only person gathering that data. So I'll have everybody in my lab meet with that individual one-on-one, and then they'll give a research presentation um, you know, orally communicating your uh, scientific uh, program is an important skill. And I want to know how they do that. And I want to know how they think on their feed. I want to see how they respond when they're challenged. When something doesn't make sense um, with something that they presented, I want to see how they respond when they're challenged. And then I want to see if they can think beyond what they presented. So what are the next steps? So that's kind of, again, same thing I'm actually probing for when I'm interviewing uh, students for the program is are they intellectually curious and are they, uh, are they uh, the type that just keeps plodding away and keeps trying to get to the answer no matter what. Same sort of thing and then get feedback. Um, similar to the way that a admissions committee works, the admissions committee is providing feedback to the MSTP and uh, again collecting data on each of the individuals that's discussed. I would say very similar approach um the other thing that I would say especially with the lab is setting expectations and making sure people that are recruited before they're even recruited lab they understand what the expectation is for them and then reinforcing that early on again clear lines of communication so there aren't any surprises
2: yeah and so what are some of those expectations
0: yeah so just that they take their training on as an individual responsibility um especially if we're talking about uh postdoctoral fellows and that um, within my lab, I'm not much of an hour miser, So, but I do want to see data. I yeah. want to see productivity. I want to see, um, and I want to see engagement in the lab as a whole. So I want to see in lab meetings. Lab meetings are a brain trust. It's an opportunity for a lot of people to think about the challenges that an individual is having. So I wanna see participation from everyone in lab meeting. Yeah. Um, I don't see lab meetings as an opportunity for the group to present to me. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity for each member of the group to present to the group. Yeah, that's awesome. So how do you measure
2: productivity then? Uh, in a you know lab, you can spend two months getting nothing accomplished. Not because you're not trying, but just because yeah. nothing's working. So yeah. How do, you, how do you keep track of those when those things are happening?
0: So for me, one, there's lab meeting. Mm-hmm. And then I meet with everyone in my lab on average once a week. And we have 30-minute to one-hour meetings. And so <clears throat> lab meeting, they'll tend to present the people the naturally. Exactly. Yeah. Tend to present the good stuff and maybe one thing that they're struggling with. Yeah. But in our one-on-one meetings, we can really talk about those challenges I think it's unreasonable um, to um, criticize somebody for not generating the data um, if there's a technical challenge in generating that data. We have to recognize that them trying to generate the data, thinking through and testing the different possibilities, is just as valuable um, in terms of productivity measurements as generating uh, the data that's actually publication quality. Right.
2: Yeah, so um, along with that, how do you, besides meeting with them weekly, how do you mentor you know, individuals and then maintain your, your team dynamic also?
0: I don't see those as mutually, mutually exclusive. exclusive. Right. Yeah. I think those are kind of hand in hand. I see my job, depending on what stage of training, whether they're an undergraduate student I need to understand what their goals are and their career aspirations are. Similarly, with graduate students or with postdoctoral fellows, the mentoring is adjusted to that. Um, You know, you started off the podcast podcast by saying, uh, you know, what are the things that aren't taught? And I think one uh, large role for me as a mentor is depending on their stage, almost stage independent, is learning how to network. And the value of making those connections. Um, so with an undergraduate student is making sure that they're networked amongst the graduate students and the postdocs. And writing letters of recommendation for them and connections. Like if they have a different interest, then let's say they do a semester in my lab. And they become interested in neurosciences. So connecting them with somebody that's involved in neurosciences. Or one of my postdocs who's trying to get a career development award. And really needs to start networking on the national level. That I see is a major role, for is a um, non-curricular item right. that a mentor needs to right. provide. And then the other big, science isn't easy. So I think the other role is to be a support for them. It's easy to only see the failures and the failures. However, there is, there is growth even in the failures. Let's say that an experiment doesn't work. And we recognized that the reason the experiment didn't work was because we didn't have the appropriate control. So now we learn to build that appropriate control into the experiment. So, the next, that's actually success, that's actually right. growth. So, helping people see the successes amidst the failures, I think, is an important component of, of a mentor. Mm-hmm.
2: That's awesome. Um, and then, what about other things like grant writing? So, how did you learn?
0: Yeah, so that's hands-on. So um, I think you've probably seen, and I suspect people commonly have responded, one way they learn to write grants or write manuscripts is through either reviewing grants or reviewing manuscripts or helping to write them themselves. So with my trainees, I don't do this with undergrads, but I do with my graduate students. When I get asked to review a paper, I'll email back the editor and say, I'm happy to review the paper, but I would like a graduate student to uh, help me in that review. And I still, I still explain to the editor that I will be involved in that review, but it's a valuable training experience for them to do that. And, uh, and I've never had an editor say no to that. And I advise my trainees, go ahead and put that on your CV as a trainee reviewer. So they can start adding that to their CV. I think it's another thing where they see how they're building, growing, and developing. Um, And then within our MSTP, we have a mock study section for their F30s. And so there are student reviewers on the mock study section. And there are junior faculty reviewers as well. So the mock study section is student-organized. And it's faculty-administered. Okay. Um,
2: so is there is there a formalized um, training in writing F-30s at Yes,
0: yeah, so there are, or I F-31. would say, fellow, yeah, exactly. I was just going to broaden that to fellowship. So a lot of the uh, individual programs have grant writing courses so or workshops. Writing. Yeah, okay. they'll have that. We overlay on top of that. We have one of our um, associate college advisors, one of my um, associate directors for the MSTP um, uh, helps with um, kind of does a grant um, what I, not a grant workshop I'm not edit this extensively please <laughs> <laughs> but they do a preview to how to submit an f30 and then um, the students have the f30 mock study section it meets three times a year the Anyone submitting Absolutely. an F-30 is encouraged to submit about six weeks, the study section's about six weeks to a month before the deadline. And um, this gives that applicant the opportunity to get another set of eyes on it. Um, the uh, So what's the value in that? Um, I'm not sure, you know, each study section has its own spirit, and an individual reviewer will have something that they key in on. Right. So I don't know how much having the study section really helps. It always helps to have another set of eyes look over a grant. Yeah. Um, the other big advantage is it sort of forces the student to get the grant written exactly. really early. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> it's, like, so, it's done six
2: weeks ahead of time. Yeah. It's such a relief that you're not waking up on a day to do and. Yeah. Uh,
0: but that also gives it six more weeks or a month or, you know, you got your review process. So maybe it ends up three more weeks, yeah. but it just gives it more time to settle, you know, to percolate. You can think of additional things. Your PI. The other, um, value I think in the, uh, the F30 submissions is, um, it sort of forces the student and their mentor to really interact intensely. So we encourage submissions during the first year of grad school um, because we just think there's a lot of advantages of doing that. So the student having to write the background for the study section really gives them an opportunity to really de- delve in deep
3: yeah. into
0: the dive in deep to the literature, and then they get a lot of interaction with their mentor. Um, and they get a lot of interaction with the other students because the students will share various aspects of successful grants or unsuccessful awesome. grants. Um, um,
3: yeah, and I
2: felt for really me when I wrote mine, it was, it was just nice because I, you, know, you jump in the lab and there's postdocs and you're not exactly sure what it is you're supposed to be doing. It's probably not the same for everybody, but, but you know, maybe it's a little bit amorphous and then you have to write this grant, which is very specific. I'm going to do these experiments, and we're going to test this hypothesis. So it helped lay out what I was going to do in grad school. Whether yeah. or not it got funded, I felt like that was a good exercise. Yeah,
3: yeah, absolutely.
0: So, and I'll say, I just emphasize, this is a really a student-led initiative. A lot of our programming is really student-led programming, like our committees, our wellness committee, retreat committee, etc. is all student-led, which is a huge benefit for the program. I would imagine Emory is very we similar. Did, we, it is similar, yeah. our retreat committee. And, yeah.
2: Um, so it, it sounds like there's a lot of really awesome things going on at Vanderbilt, MSTP level and PSTP level. I'm curious if there are things that you would like to see changed, maybe not at Vanderbilt, maybe nationally.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. So um, something that I've been very excited about. So I mentioned in our introduction that I used to direct our PSTP. And then I was given the opportunity to direct our MSTP. And in stepping up as MSTP director, um, had an increasing appreciation that we were doing nationally a pretty good job at training MD-PhD students vis-a-vis MD-PhD programs, structure, community building, etc. But then we were graduating our students off into the cold, dark wilderness of residency training in which they might have no exposure to role models, depending on their physician-scientist role models uh, or faculty, and have this long period of time where they're just intensely getting trained in the, in their, uh, in the clinical uh, arena, which is important. You need that intense experience. But there are also these programs called PSTPs that I mentioned were present at Vanderbilt since '98. Now, there are about roughly 40 formal medicine PSDPs in the country, maybe 15 formal pediatric PSDPs in the country as well, which really strive to provide some of that structure and community building, um, uh, really infrastructure at the postgraduate level. So I think nationally, we can do a much better job at providing that kind of support. Um, I think Skip Brass at University of Pennsylvania with Miles Akabas. Have um, just published the largest outcome study ever uh, uh, for uh, MD/PhD graduates, and the MD/PhD programs are very successful at training physician scientists. I think we need to work more nationally at providing support at the post postgraduate level, and I think some of the experiences uh, that MSTP MD/PhD directors have had over fifty years can be translated. To the, to the PSTP space. So I think more formal programming, and by programming, I don't necessarily mean didactics. I just mean programming in the sense of providing structure so that communities can form, um, and then increase vertical integration. So MD, PhD students should have access and should know about postgraduate physicians, scientists, trainees, and those communities need to be able to interact with each other so, a student who's in um, the late graduate phase of their training is trying to decide between medicine and pediatrics. They've got medicine and pediatric physician scientist residents that they can interact with, that they can ask. And a student, an M4 student, uh, has um, those residents and fellows to then say, okay, I'm going into medicine. Which of the programs really support physician scientist yeah, training? Where true. did you look? So, we need access. Yeah. Uh, So I think that's important nationally. And there's some really cool things, I think, that are going on nationally now. So this past year um, at the AAMC MD-PhD directors meeting for the first time, we actually had a meeting where these two communities of directors got Mm -hmm. together. So we had a session where uh, PSTP directors and medicine, pediatrics, psychology, and pathology were on a panel. And they were asked, how do you evaluate MD-PhD applicants to your programs? We as MD-PhD directors think we know how our students are evaluated, but we never really asked. And so there were um, some interesting feedback from there because questions are, well, how much do step scores matter? How much does the dean's letter matter? So we have a survey that we've sent out now where we've surveyed about 40 of these PSTP directors on on these metrics, and we're looking forward to publishing that and sharing that with the community. Um, then other things, the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine, for now it's going into its fourth year is organized a PSTP directors meeting, and uh, the idea there is to get the directors together just like the MD-PhD directors got together 30 years ago to share their experiences, to recognize that we can work together, and we don't, we're not competing. We can share, quote, best practices. Interesting term, but otherwise. Um, And then the ASCI and the AP and APSA uh, have a lot of programming that's being developed to support uh, postgraduate trainees and trainees at all stages of the physician-scientist spectrum. The um, APSA has organized uh, for the last several years, a panel of PSTP directors, and then students can ask questions to the PSTP directors. Um, And it's interesting. There are um, some inaccuracies that are out there um, regarding uh, what one should be looking for in postgraduate uh, support and training. And I think uh, having more open lines of communication about what PSTP directors provide and expect and what their programmings provide. Uh, will be a benefit to the trainees and are needed. Uh, The AAMC just formed a subcommittee for PSTP directors, um, so that should foster these interactions. Um, Yeah, I think those are the big national things. The ASCI meeting this year, the um, AAP-ASCI-APSA meeting this year Uh, actually has part of their plenary programming is directed to physician-scientist training, which I think is one of the first times that they've done that. And the topic is uh, disrupting physician-scientist training. Hmm. So I'll participate in that panel. Becky Barron, who's the Brigham uh, PSTP director, uh, and then Sally Permer, who's the Duke Office for Physician-Scientist Development. Uh, Dean will participate in that panel also.
2: That's awesome and sort of reassuring that people are thinking about really? that, um, because it's a long training pathway, and we have interviewed some junior faculty that are very much felt like it's a black hole. After I mean, you know, where, how am I supposed to navigate negotiating uh, assistant professorship or whatever? Um, do you guys have support for that sort of thing within Harrison Society when when you know? You get people through really learning to do clinical medicine and lab and potentially write presumably a career development award but then when they get to the end of their fellowship training yeah is there um is there support or mentoring or whatever to help them get that like the next step in transition into independence
0: absolutely so this is another program that's been around for i'm going to say since early 2002 It's called the Newman Society, and it was actually created by our our dean, who's a physician scientist. His name's Jeff Balzer, and he was an MSTP student here as well. And this is a junior faculty development program. So this provides this kind of mentoring. Again, we've been circling back to community an awful lot during this discussion. It builds a community of junior faculty physician scientists and scientists. It's inclusive, so it includes non-physician scientists. And provides There's a, a, a seminar series that provides tips on grant writing, how to submit a grant, uh, some of the other component. One of the components that I like is um, something like how to submit a manuscript, and then the next session is uh, how to respond to critiques, and the next session is something along the lines of how to uh, develop resiliency yeah. skills, yeah. you know, um, and then they've got a mock study section also. Mm-hmm. And so my first R01 went through that mock study section, and that's videotaped mm-hmm. and uh, recorded, obviously. And so you have the, uh, the uh, somewhat unpleasant experience of seeing faculty criticize yeah, your grant. It sounds
2: more than somewhat unpleasant. <laughs> but,
0: but it's an extremely valuable yeah, experience absolutely. to see how a committee chooses through making these sorts of decisions. Extremely valuable. So that program's been around for you know almost several decades now, and so there are outcomes data on that. And they have an approximate 75% K-to-R transition rate, which is, I think, that's over twice the national average for K-to-R. That's awesome. I think that's multifactorial. My belief is a major component of that is just uh, having an environment where those near-peer and peer-peer mentoring activities can thrive. That's... So, so so, just say, so at, at Vanderbilt, we have this, I, I hesitate to use pipeline, maybe pathway is a good way of looking at it, that um, can begin at, begin at the MD-PhD level. And if a trainee elects to stay here, they have that same community all the way through their postgraduate training and then all the way through their junior faculty training yeah. till they get tenured. Until um, they get their R01, yeah. and then when they get their R01, they actually graduate from the Newman Society into another program called the Nielsen Society. The goal of the Nielsen Society is to provide mentoring and in the community to get them to tenure. Hmm. So all the way up to tenure, there's this pathway. The reason I like the analogy of a pathway is because we want to recruit at every stage on that pathway. Um, so, for example, our R38 program funds residents in medicine and pediatrics who want to engage in meaningful research experience for one to two years during residency. The goal of that program is to recruit them into our Harrison Society, the Internal Medicine PSTP, or the Pediatric PSTP. And the PSTPs will recruit out of residency also in individuals that aren't participating in the R38 here at Vanderbilt, Kathy Hartman runs our Newman Society, and she's been running that for a number of years, and it's really outstanding um, uh, program. And then I'm Associate Dean for Physician Scientist Education and Training and MSTP Director. My task is to help develop PSDPs, so I help develop our pediatric PSDP. We already had a surgery PSDP. We have an anesthesiology PSTP. And then we're in the process of developing a neurosciences PSTP. Our idea there, in most PSTPs are um, uh, clinical discipline specific. So you'd say, well, why not just develop a neurology PSTP right. and a psychiatry PSTP? The number of physician scientists applicants that we recruit into those programs is so small, maybe one a year. We thought it made sense with the blending of those disciplines on the research side with the Neuroscience Institute let's blend the PSTPs and then our medicine PSTP like most programs is the biggest on the on the campus and the agreement is all these other PSTPs can leverage the Harrison society activities so they're all invited to the Harrison that's society awesome. thing so, so
2: so there's there's crosstalk not yeah. siloed yeah. whatever anesthesiology PSTP you yeah. can talk to that
0: yeah and that's part of that it just there's an advantage in me being the former Harrison director and then still being the associate Harrison director. And Patrick and I work very closely on the Harrison side. He's an MSTP faculty advisor. Dan's an MSTP faculty advisor. Um, Sachin Patel, who's probably going to head the neurosciences PSTP, he's an MSTP advisor. So you have these people that are involved in the next stage of the training, actively involved in the current stage of the training. I think there's a lot of uh, advantage to that. Our MD-PhD program, we recruit out of the medical school class as well. Then we have a Burroughs Welcome Fund grant as well. That's for MD-only uh, physician scientists. And we've got a year out for med students, uh, support during residency and fellowship, and then junior faculty
3: component to awesome.
0: that too.
2: So you can just, you could step onto Vanderbilt's campus as a first-year medical student. And there's longitudinal support for you till you tenure
0: yeah mm-hmm. potential. that's actually the path I took really yeah so it came as an MSTP student yeah. stayed all the way throughout yeah. being careful to investigate other opportunities at key phases of my career for me it's never made sense uh, for me to move anywhere else
2: mm-hmm. but that and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast that's true the traditional thinking which seems to be changing, at least according to most of the people we interview. But the traditional thinking was always you need to move. Yeah, you know, that is at the Every, every stage, but it's at least the people we've been talking to. It seems like they're doing that less and less, partially because they are building their well, they're building their lives, but they're also building this you know community of other physician scientists Precisely. and scientists and collaborators. Yeah. Um, do you think that? What value is there in staying?
0: Yeah, I think you illustrated the value in staying. That's kind of was my thought process. When I was at the um, student-to-resident transition, I applied to a number of different programs. And for me, my mindset was I've already spent seven years building this network at Vanderbilt. And um, thank goodness had convinced some people that there was value in supporting me and thought, um, while it provides a great opportunity to move to another institution to see how they engage in science and clinical practice and et cetera, I saw a lot of value in staying here and building on those existing relationships. Um, that's the way that I uh, had approached it. And it um, given my research interests and clinical interests, uh, Vanderbilt really in that area was very strong. So it would have taken an awful lot for me to have left uh, Vanderbilt to pursue those. Um, that's amazing. So,
2: so then just before we close, what do you think um, the future of this career path holds? And what do you think the value is within, within the broader construct of academic
0: science and clinical medicine? Yeah, so uh, great question. So I think the future for, for physician scientists is actually very bright. We've worried about the physician scientist pathway for a very long time. Um, there is incredible value in think in going through this clinical and graduate training process. That MD PhD is just focusing on those that uh, they bring to the academic enterprise. Um, being able to see patients and know disease uh, progression and identify gaps in therapies and then being able to not perhaps bring it back in your own lab, but knowing how to talk that way and talk about those disease related uh, processes to other colleagues is extremely valuable. If you look at chief scientific officers of major corporate, major, um, um, uh, pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, they're disproportionately represented by physician scientists. I think the other thing, when you look across the academic enterprise, the leadership also is disproportionately represented by, th- by physician scientists. And I think it's the value of having these dual training experiences in these dual careers. Um, I think uh, physician scientists have made impressive discoveries over the years. Look at the Nobel awardees over time. And I think there are many discoveries that physician scientists will continue to engage in um, going forward as well. For me, it's an incredibly rewarding uh, career path. So I'm trained as a gastroenterologist. Mm -hmm. I still perform endoscopy. My research interests are in epithelial wound healing and repair in colitis-associated carcinoma. So why do patients with inflammatory bowel disease uh, have an increased risk for developing colon cancer? And are there ways, better ways, for us to detect, diagnose colon cancer at early, more manageable stages? For me, my clinical practice directly feeds into that. There's nothing like being in a, uh, a GI procedural suite, conducting and performing a colonoscopy. And gastroenterologists were a little bit quirky by nature. Um, But there's nothing that sucks the air out of the room than than scoping a patient who's 60 years old coming around a corner and seeing a large uh, colon cancer, knowing that in about 15, 20 minutes, you're going to have a life-changing discussion with them and their loved ones and realizing we've just got to figure out a better way of, of diagnosing this at an early stage. For me, that motivates some aspects of my research program. I think that's something that, for physician scientists, depending upon their research and clinical interests, can drive um, their research program and discovery programs as well. That's very well put. All right, I've really enjoyed this. Thanks for the opportunity oh, yeah, to chat with you guys. Thank you so much um, for taking the time to do it. This is wonderful. So.
1: Thank you all for listening. That's our episode for this week. Thanks again to Dr. Williams for a great conversation. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode featuring a current student of the Vanderbilt MD-PhD program. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share us with others you think would appreciate this content. Behind the Microscope is executive produced by Joe Banke, Carrie Jansen, Michael Sayeg, and me. Our faculty advisor is Dr. Brian Robinson. Josh Owens is our associate producer. I'm Bijan Sadie, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.